This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. Tonight I'm going to give you some wonderful words of chizik and I'll take out my toolbox for the to-do. Many people have been asking me questions out there into how do I deal with dating now, what should I do? Obviously, obviously everything has gone into telephone and video mode. And so I'm going to share with you what I've been telling many of my clients out there worldwide, how to do this successfully. By the way, if you do need me, feel free to reach out to me from anywhere in the world at 305-206-1916. Or you can email me at drjackcohen18 at gmail.com. If you have questions on dating, if you have questions on how to create it, you need my help, to draft a top 10 list, you have questions on the relationship you're in. Uh, it's been unfortunate that the, the, the current situation has really tested relationships that were really going, you know, smooth and going well. And without being able to see the other party, many relationships from what I've seen, been seeing have been floundering a bit. So I'm going to give some hope today and some chizik. Here we go. The virus has left many of us grieving, more of us heartsick, all of us frightened and vulnerable. Rafishal Shachat, who is an outstanding Talmud Chacham, tells a beautiful story. A, a Kala called him up broken and shattered over the dreams that she had, over the beautiful wedding that she had dreamed that she would have, and now, basically, it's evaporated, that dream. He describes a father who calls with his daughter, and relates that the daughter had spent months planning the perfect wedding, and now her plans were up in smoke, and she was distraught. Rabbi Shachter shared the story with her. Many years ago, Rav Shagam Felvam and the Lovitz, this is the person who is responsible for most, if not all, the Hebrew day schools in the United States. If there's a yeshiva that's up and running in New York, or in Chicago, or in Miami, or in Dallas, or in Houston, or in Los Angeles, or in San Francisco, or anywhere in the United States, it has his name and imprint on it, as he was the person who started the National Hebrew Day School movement. So what is what happened? Many years ago, this wonderful rabbi found a non-religious Jewish kid playing stickball and brought him to the only yeshiva in time, 70, 80 years ago, Torah Vadas in Brooklyn. The kid was a genius and took to learning like fish in water, but his family was so unhappy that he'd become religious and expressed an interest in learning Torah. One day, Rav Shraga told the kids that whoever learns a chapter of Mishnayis Baal Peh would get a chocolate, a rare treat. This kid memorized the Mishnayis, recited it proudly. But ten kids knew the Mishnayis well, and unfortunately there were only nine chocolate bars. Rav Shraga asked the boy to remind them about the chocolate the next day. But the kid was too shy. And Rav Shaga Fivel forgot about the chocolate bar. The boy was so upset, he went home and he told his mother, you know what, these rabbis, they're all liars. The mother said, see, I told you so, don't trust these religious people. The boy didn't want to go back to yeshiva, but then he admitted, well mom, the rabbi did say that I should remind him, and it's my fault, I did not. He didn't muster up the nerve to ask for the treat, the boy, but he did return to yeshiva. He grew up to be a tremendous leader of the Jewish nation, and went on to do great things for Klai Yisrael as a serious scholar. Fifty years later, this man had a massive heart attack. He was in a coma, and the doctors didn't think he was going to make it. Suddenly, his family saw him move a finger. It took a while, but eventually he was on the mend. And then he said to them, astonishingly, as he woke up from his coma, I had a dream, and in my dream, Rav Shraga came to me in the dream, and he said to me, you've been granted another 15 years of life. He said, don't I owe you something? He owed him a chocolate bar. And that chocolate bar was equivalent to 15 years of life. He promised me more life, he told his family. Not since World War II, ladies and gentlemen, have people gotten married like the way they're getting now married in this corona epidemic. Hashem owes these brides and grooms, this chasanim and kalas something. A person has a set amount of joy or simcha that they'll experience in life. 
Whatever gets exhausted by the wedding is gone. Corona collars will get that joy elsewhere. Corona grooms will get that joy elsewhere. Hashem is an IOU, and He'll pay His IOU off. There's pain, yes, there's disappointment. Things feel like they're not as they should be. But we have no idea what Hashem is holding on to us, and He's holding and in store for us. Waiting for the perfect moment to unleash His abundant blessings and happiness to us. And now I thought I would read you a beautiful editorial that I read from a young man, which is very interesting. It really captured my heart. He says the following, Like a lot of you, I woke up the first day of Pesach disappointed. The Geula, the redemption, had not arrived. And then the seventh day of Pesach, still not. However, from when the virus hit, I was not into the Mashiach's coming mantra as I felt it was a cop-out. Allow me to explain. God puts us in situations to have us first think about what we're doing. We are then required to fix what, we, what is going on that is wrong in our lives. And then Mashiach can come. I have found that people were saying Mashiach is coming without a thorough introspection into their own lives. Well, how we are now reminded. We are now in mid-virus. People have died. People are sick. They lost jobs. They started off marriage in a really compromised fashion. The list goes on. So how are we going to change once this pandemic is over? The Simcha Initiative, which tries to scale down weddings, was a great start. However, the man writes, I believe there's an overarching issue which requires some real change. And we call it entitlement. And he writes, I went through the yeshiva system, and I would like to share with you some of my observations. And ladies and gentlemen, this is not limited to people who just went to yeshiva. This could be anybody, a public school person, a person who went to Hebrew day school, whatever it may be, a parochial school. It speaks to all of us. For starters, I noticed almost all of my friends working jobs that do not bring out their best potential. They go for jobs in healthcare, cash advance, leasing, real estate, any job that they can get rich quick and they have connections to. So many are snacking their way through podcasts during the day and flirting with dangers at night, wondering why they are not feeling fulfilled. Interestingly enough, most of them started off their marriage in Israel, sacrificing, as we say in Hebrew, Moser Nefesh for Torah, for the first few years of their new life together. Something is not adding up, and we must be missing something. We decided to search for answers. I realized that we created an entitled generation, myself included, he admits. While we were growing up, we were entitled to the nicest clothing, camps, restaurants, it could be because our parents did not know how to communicate and just loved us without giving, by giving us everything. Whatever the case is, we went through school without taking it seriously. The rebbeim and teachers had to listen to our parents, and we were always right. We never thought about our future, our college, our real life. We'll figure it out, is what we used to say to everyone. We come home from Israel and we start dating. And the shatchanim of the matchmakers promised us rich, pretty, and skinny girls. There we go, that ugly word, entitlement. We must go back to Israel and get a fat apartment. Entitlement. Why would I go out with a girl who doesn't come from money? I'm entitled after all. But why are we demanding that? Well, it's obviously the better, more holy life. False. Totally not true. For most of us, going to Israel is not mysterious nefesh, is not sacrificing for Torah. We know true sacrifice for Torah when we see it. What are we seeing today? Monthly rental cars, Thailand honeymoons, a lot weekends, Skyline weekly dinners, Seudos, epic things. We don't believe that's mysterious nefesh for Torah. No, that's not sacrifice for Torah. As a matter of fact, I want to share a story with you. My wife and I like to do a getaway to Miami Beach where we used to live. Our in-laws are there. And we'll stay for four or five days. And once in a while I go, you know, try different shuls. And I'll go to Mincha and Mariv and my wife will pick me up after. So there I was waiting for my wife near the Bell Harbor shul after Mincha and Mariv when we saw a shocking sight. All these young couples, young Kolel couples coming out of hotels like the St. Regis and the Western Hotel. 
Ladies and gentlemen, these are six, seven hundred dollar a night hotels. And my wife and I are just looking at each other. Where are they getting the money for all this? This is a Kolel couple? And I'll tell you something even more bizarre. I was helping a young man in a very prestigious yeshiva. Very prestigious yeshiva. It has many people there studying there. And he, I was helping him with a relationship. And he said to me that the girl is going away for three days to Los Angeles to visit family. So I said, okay, so you'll continue learning well while she's away and you'll start and you resume your dating when she comes back on the weekend. No, no, no. I'm headed off to Atlantis in the Bahamas. I was like, what? You're in yeshiva. You're leaving the middle of the Seder to go to Atlantis? There's something bizarre, something going on that we have to really fix. We go back to America, usually less serious when we first move there. And then the cycle continues. We get that job that does not actually talk the language of our souls. We live where no one else would want to bother us. We run away from the rabbis. We don't care for community. Life goes on. The parties get bigger. Our wives get pushed away. We buy them back with jewelry. We start making quick money. We learn how to put that show on. We make those stucker smokehouse parties. It looks great. The yeshivas ask us for money. It's all great. False. Totally false. Where are we going? Where are the old-time Jews who were honest, hard-working people? Understanding of developing the reason they were put on this earth. Who gives who give thought to why God put me on this planet? Now we have a lot of time to think about it. We don't have the answers, but there is one place we can change, and that's called Shidduchim. My area, the area that I like to talk about. There are so many girls who can't find Shidduchim because of money. Great guys won't go near them. Why are we marrying the money and not the girl? Can we not face our true self and believe that Panasa comes from Hashem? Is it so bad to go out and fulfill your potential and make a living that way? Most of those guys who want a full support do not end up learning after the Israel trip is over. Let us seek out wives and jobs that actually bring us closer to Hashem and help ourselves become the Eved Hashem we're supposed to become. So many people had the promising life before COVID-19. People married rich and now find themselves struggling financially. There is a God. We must ask ourselves, who are we? What do we really need for our future? If you're starting Shaduchim now, ask yourself, who am I? Listen to me as I try to impress upon everyone. Create a top 10 needs list so you don't aim, you know, wander aimlessly in the dating world. You know who you are. You know what you want. Sit down and have a deep think. If you need help, reach out to me. I do this day and night, helping people draft top 10 lists. I'll help you. Just reach out to me. Go to drjackdating.com. Call me at 305-206-1916. Write me an email, drjackcohen18 at gmail.com, and I'll help you. And not, not what apartment can her father get me. Ask yourself who you really are. Maybe start a course that really speaks to you. We are a special nation. We know how to fix things. Let me share a story with a man who is one of those special people who knows how to fix things and who can represent us in a way that we're proud. An Israeli religious Hasidish male nurse who survived COVID-19 shares what it's like working during this horrible pandemic. Benzi Porges, a Belzer Hasid from B'nai Brak and the father of six children. Just excuse me for one second. I want to just make sure everything's right with the camera. Okay, great. Benzi Porges, a Belzer Chassid from B'nai Brak and the father of six children, works as a nurse at Ikolov Hospital in Tel Aviv. He's accustomed to hearing all kinds of comments about his unusual vocation. After all, how often do you walk into a hospital, see a man in scrubs with payas? Side curls. Patients often see him and remark, I want a real nurse. 
not some volunteer or a member of uh, an organization that's a stuck organization. And he writes, after contracting the coronavirus as a result of his work, he realized that the quarantining at home wasn't an option. And he writes the following, beautiful story. I'm an emergency room nurse at Ikulov Hospital in Tel Aviv. When COVID-19 made its appearance in our region two weeks before Pesach, our emergency room became a triage center. I was busy caring for seriously ill patients from morning until night. Although I was careful to be fully masked and gloved, it was inevitable that I would contract the virus. I got it from a nurse who got it from a doctor in the emergency room. As soon as I experienced the first symptoms, a painful headache and a general weakness, and even before I tested positive, I realized that I was a ticking time bomb. Given that apartments in Bnei Brak are typically congested and social distancing is nearly impossible, I would need to move away from my wife and young children for their safety. I took the test, which came back positive, and I immediately packed my bags. And my wife looked at me astonishingly. You're going to leave me alone with six children right before Pesach? She couldn't believe that I would actually do that. But I explained that I couldn't risk anyone else becoming sick in the house, God forbid. As a medical professional, I knew how deadly this virus could be. I explained to her that there was a war going on and I was like a missile that had fallen directly in our house. We had to remove the danger. There was no choice. Thankfully, I wasn't sick enough to be hospitalized, so where would I go? There were not any hotels or guest houses open to the outbreak. However, the luxurious Dom Panorama Hotel, a beachfront hotel in Tel Aviv, had been temporarily turned into a shelter for patients by the, by the Israeli government who tested positive and needed a place in which to quarantine themselves. Officials from the Israeli Defense Forces Magen David Adom, which is Israel's version of 911, and police had isolated and secured the hotel, setting up special sterile area for this use. I spent two weeks at the Dam Panorama. I had been very busy over the last few years, and I always wished and dreamed that I had more time to study Torah. Well, now I got my chance. My wish now came true. I was married, I was Zochel and merited to make a completion on Meseches Brachis. I learned to say for Noam and Limelech, and I recited tremendous amounts of Tehillim. All told, there were around 500 residents of the hotel with various stages of COVID-19. Some had minor symptoms and were asymptomatic, while others were weak and lethargic, struggling to breathe. It was so hard and so painful to watch. Unfortunately, there were no doctors or other medical professionals in close proximity to the hotel. Oftentimes, we would have to wait for several hours until overworked and understaffed hospital employees would come to the rescue. It says in Pirkei Avos something important. In a place where there is no man, stand up and be the man. And that is exactly what I did. My medical training and desire to help others kicked in. There was a nurse, a religious woman who worked in Hadassah Hospital was also there, who arrived before me because she was also quarantining with COVID-19. I decided to help her. We were joined by other medical professionals and we decided to set up a frontline infirmary. The first thing we did was we got the government to give us supplies, things like oxygen tanks and portable ventilators. Our goal was to help patients who needed emergency care but were still breathing on their own. Once a patient could no longer breathe independently, they would need to be transported to the closest hospital. We would walk around the hotel several times a day and see if anyone was in distress. I would approach people and ask them, how are you feeling? Do you need any oxygen or food or anything else? Over the course of my quarantine, I was able to treat hundreds of patients. My two weeks in isolation passed quickly. Although the days were very long for my wife, trying to make Pesach while entertaining the children, I initially thought I would have to remain at the hotel over Yom Tov, and I began to plan a large Seder for everyone in the hotel. But just hours before Seder night, my test came back negative and I was allowed to go home. It was a total shock. I got a call from the administrator telling me, pack my bags, you have an hour to get out of here. And I wasn't going to wait one second. I ran home, my kids were surprised and delighted when I showed up at the door. My wife had planned to make the Seder by herself. 
and had already prepared everything. We were all very emotional. It was such a great feeling to be reunited with my wife and kids. When I returned to Bnei Brak, just minutes before the holiday, I almost did not recognize the once bustling city. Bnei Brak was on lockdown. The usually crowded shuls were closed, and the streets were basically deserted. It was like a ghost town, unheard of for Bnei Brak. Its tens of thousands of residents were obeying the restrictions very carefully, were able, and were able to escape the worst of the disease. One of the reasons I think we saw this was hearing the tragic news from Brooklyn about the high rate of fatalities there, and we didn't want to end up in the same circumstance. Another reason is that perhaps Israelis are used to living on the edge, having experienced numerous terror attacks and missiles coming from nearby Gaza. Every, every house has what's called a cheder atum, a sealed room where we are instructed to go during times of danger. So for us, that's part of daily life. As for the elderly or those who were unable to obtain food, it was amazing to see Israeli soldiers walking up and down the streets delivering food to those who were isolated, making a true Kiddush Hashem or honor in God's name. Although the rate of fatality was much lower than Jewish communities outside of Israel, unfortunately there were still many Jews who needed to be ventilated. While sealing off areas, it was also hard to get around, as there were many IDF checkpoints. On the Sunday of Cholamoyed, I returned to Echelov Hospital for my final coronavirus test. Taken outdoors, before I could return to work, I had to test again. That evening I was told that it was negative. There was only one hurdle ahead, my beard. My beard, the, the beard that I'd never shaved in my life. But there was a possibility that it might interfere with the effectiveness of the mask that I would have to wear. So far no one had asked me to shave my beard, but if it turns out that it's required, I'll have to present the question to my Rebbe, the Belzerov. And I'll do whatever is necessary. From the very beginning, my mission had always been to follow his directives. And let me tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in the middle of Israel, near Gedera. My father was a member of Atzala. I followed in his footsteps. I joined Atzala and in Zaka. Zaka, which many people know, is an emergency responders team who perform the acts of dealing with the dead in the aftermath of terror attacks. And so my Rebbe had, had encouraged me to go and take a, a nursing course, and I did, and I became a certified nurse. I found jobs in Ikhalov, where I became an emergency room nurse and still wear my Hasidic garb. I'm one of only four religious male nurses in Ikhalov, and I can't tell you how much is a source of comfort to many religious people who come into the emergency room and they spot me. I must stress that the care that was given to COVID-19 patients in Israel and all the hospitals of Israel, which includes Ikhalov, Hadassah, and many others, was excellent. Our hospital was not, our hospitals were not as overwhelmed. And our staff members have a Jewish heart. Unfortunately, I've heard distressing reports of patients in America dying from hunger and neglect. This has never happened here in Israel, God forbid. I have been asked numerous times why I spent a decade of my life studying to be a nurse when I could have expended a bit more effort and not only become a doctor, but earned a lot more money. And my answer has always been the same. I'm a soldier following orders, trying to be Marve Kavot Shemaim, trying to increase the honor of God. I'd like to share with you a beautiful story about a woman who watched her best friend get married recently. A wedding took place in the backyard of my friend's neighbor. She watched from her window as the Kala walked around the Chassan seven times with only a few close relatives scattered below the deck where the chuppah had been set up. I davened, the Kala said something beautiful. I davened that I should get married. I never davened that Hashem should grant me a great, magnificent wedding. When we daven to Hashem, we say, I want to get married. We don't tell Him, I want a 500 audience wedding. And so she got what she wanted, the wedding. She got married. That's the most important thing. While all the couples who got married without friends and extended family present accepted Hashem's will, it doesn't take away from the sense of loss. There's a reason it's a mitzvah to leave our homes and spend time traveling to make a chassan and kala happy, to mishmeh chassan and kala in normal times. 
I'm sure that all of us will appreciate Simcha so much more when we can celebrate them together again. Some people have said that these bare-bone weddings are a sign that we should simplify things and scale back. But while there are certain lessons that we can learn about the role of material things in our lives, a bride and groom, a chassan and kala, who didn't have their friends with them to wish them a hearty mazel tov after breaking the glass, is still feeling pain. As well, a chassan and kala who could not have their beloved grandparents present on their wedding day or experience what it's like to be in the center of a dance circle. One kala or bride expressed guilt. She said the following, Here I am crying that I didn't have the wedding of my dreams and people are dying and I'm crying over a party? Kala dear, we tell her it's okay to cry. While it's true that we're going through difficult times, it doesn't take away from what you're feeling. Someone else's circumstances might be worse. Yes, but for some reason, Hashem wanted the extra tears of these special couples who were chosen to face this challenge. But is it a time to celebrate? That's the question. Yes, we answer. Absolutely yes. Because every joyful occasion, even amidst sorrow, represents the Jewish people's perseverance and continuity. Even when the world around us is unrecognizable, And in turmoil, we will never stop building Jewish homes, never. I can tell you from my own experience in the last three or four weeks, thank God I'm very busy. I'm doing whatever I can to set people up, to train them, to teach them, to guide them as they call me. And you're welcome to do the same. Even when Paro was drowning Jewish babies in the Nile, we'd never, never stop perpetuating the generations. Even in the hardest of times, we will stand up and push on. Mazel tov to all the brides and grooms, to all the chassanim and kalas during this trying most difficult ace Torah for Klal Yisrael. Know that Klal Yisrael is celebrating together with you as well as sharing, sharing in your tears. Let me share a beautiful story with you about a recent Kala. I've been planning my wedding for years. I live in London. I saved invitations that struck my fancy in my drawer. My mother said mine was her easiest wedding to plan. I wasn't fazed by all the choices. I like nice things. I love detail and design. And it was all so beautiful. But not in the ways that I planned. You see, my chassan is from Israel. The panic started early in Israel, as did the protective measures. He and his family were meant to come to London after Purim a couple of days before our wedding. With so many flights being canceled, they left Israel a week earlier, which meant skipping the big ofruf my in-laws had planned for their oldest son, my chassan, making a small event a week earlier. We were relieved they were in town. In England, things were still laid back. Purim was as festive as ever, with people donning masks as Purim get-up, The Prime Minister was taking a much more laissez-faire or laid-back approach. And we were happy to go along. This is Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Our wedding was scheduled for Wednesday. We held our breath all Shabbos, but the hall did not cancel. People were bopping elbows instead of shaking hands. So what? Right after Shabbos, the messages started coming in. Concerned friends, neighbors, the caterer, the makeup artists switched to Plan B. Plan A was the great, beautiful hall, Plan B was a, a beautiful estate. You can't use the big hall, so many, so many people, you got to scale down. I didn't want to hear of this. I got into bed and turned on my phone. I heard the whispers from downstairs in my house. My father went to check out a, the big house overlooking the park that says how many people it could fit. I was frozen in bed. Whatever I said, just leave me out of it. My parents were upset for me. I'm a party girl. I wanted a big loud bash. I had dreams of a helicopter landing in the park and, the, my, and my cousin and I flying into the clouds. On Monday, we put Plan B into action. On Monday evening, <laughs> Prime Minister Johnson addressed the nation. He said, this is a war. One, we have to fight together. And he announced the full lockdown. Bam! Plan B went to dust. I cried that evening away. I couldn't do this. I didn't want to go small. I wanted everyone there. 
Let's push off the wedding, I said. Send the chassan and his family back home. We'll do it again. We are not chassidim, but my father called the vision of the Rebbe. He was a huge admar in Israel. As to whether we should push off the wedding. We don't push off weddings, the Rebbe said. Especially if there's no date. That's an alternative date. And there was none for now. My father put the phone down. Five minutes later, it rang again. The Rebbe was back on the line. He wanted to give me chizak and a divri bracha. I couldn't cheer up. Back to the dark ages, I said. A wedding in my house with no one? Another phone call. A local Rebbeton sharing more chizak. Then a neighbor came over, clapped their hands and said, We're doing this. You don't have a plan. You don't have to do anything. We're going to have the, you're going to have the most gorgeous wedding right here in your house. I wanted her out. Like, leave right now. Plan C. And so plan C was put into effect. It was a day before my wedding. I hadn't spoken to my chassan for a week. Then his letter arrived. Five handwritten pages of his strength and emunah smiled as I smiled through my tears. My grandparents were smiling too. They lived next door, but were staying home for their own safety. With the chuppah in our garden, my grandparents could watch it from the window. Later there was yet another phone call, a mother of a kala calling between the chuppah and dinner in their own home, telling us they just had the most beautiful chuppah in their own living room. I couldn't even speak to her. I was crying, but my father held the phone near my ear. It was probably my grandfather who lived in Israel and could not attend. My grandfather who had survived Auschwitz, who gave me the final push. He'd been through so much in his life. He spoke to me of how he'd always pushed through. After speaking with him, I found strength to compose a text message to family and friends, letting them know that I'd be getting married in my house with only family and very close friends in attendance. On the day of the wedding, I woke up and I was okay. Really, really okay. I could do this, I said. I received an overwhelming number of replies over the night. I teared up. You'll be all part of it, I thought, and they were. We decided to live stream the wedding so our extended family and friends could be part of it. We got over 12,000 views. Of course, there were people who were watching just for fun. Everyone's home, hanging around. Why not peek in on someone else's wedding? We got feedback from those people. People who didn't know us, but felt the simcha too. My, my wedding felt surreal. A white chuppah in the garden, a collar chair and a flower display in the spot where my family and I used to play ball and share barbecues. Everyone who was there gave it their all. At some point, we all let go. It was so labadic, so happy. Spirited dancing that went on and on. Traditional songs, new releases. The pace picked up too. Our song became a tefillah. Hashem, thank you. Later, friends came too to celebrate. After the wedding, people kept asking my father, will you do another wedding in your home? It was so special. I'd always dreamed of an elegant affair, of tulle and flowers, tables sparkling with silver and crystal goblets. But our wedding was different, held during an ace a time of serious sorrow for Klal Yisrael, with the reminders of gullus everywhere. It was beautiful, like the smashed glass under the chassan's foot, glinting, catching the light. And so this, in this day and age, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's, we've turned into a video or teleconferen- teleconferencing dating world. And so many people are asking me, what should we be doing? How should we, do we react? What should we ask? Tonight, I'll offer my toolbox as to what I think will be wonderful suggestions and pieces of advice to help you perform your best while we're in this era. Because we don't know how long it's going to go for. There are two things you can do as you are if you are in Shaduchim. You can be proactive and, and deal with the new paradigm which is what's on the table right now. These are the cards that Hashem has put on the table. You can play that hand or simply do nothing. So for those who want to do something, I'll share with you my thoughts. First of all, let me take out my tool bags of proper etiquette for seven tips for a successful video date. Number one, dress properly for a first date. I've had the pleasure, Baruch Hashem, of setting up many people in the last five, six days. 
And I tell them, for the men, dress up like suit, tie, or no tie, but, dress, but you have to have a shirt and blazer or, or suit jacket on. Women, girls, you got to make sure you put makeup on, dress nicely, jewelry and all. It's like it's a physical date. Number two, make sure you're in a quiet room so that there's no distractions. So the other person feels that you're giving them their utmost attention and that they're makom rishon, they're playing, they're getting the opportunity to be first place. Next, show off your good angles. Make sure that you look at the angle that you're speaking at to ensure that you're being viewed in a good way. I had recently a girl who told me that she was seeing the chin of the boy because he didn't check to see what he would look like. Next, make sure that the audio is high, good quality. Next, look at the camera and remember to smile. I can't emphasize that enough. You've got to train yourself to smile and always be happy and look straight and directly, good eye contact at the person you're speaking to. Make sure the lighting is appropriate. And also, last but not least, keep expectations low. Don't expect love at first sight. It's not going to be the same as being in a restaurant or in a lounge with the person. We know that, but we have to now work with what we have. There's nothing that can replace sitting with someone in person. So keep the expectations low. This way, you won't be so shocked or ogged off a bit. You won't be disappointed if it doesn't work out. Now, let me just get my notes together, and we'll get this all put in order. Give me a second. Give me one. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. Every man has the power to bring out the best in a woman, but only few men realize it. If a man could see himself through a woman's eyes, he would experience that which would make him attractive to her. Consider this, these words and these uh, uh, pieces of advice very relevant as you prepare for a video date. It's easy to conclude that a man is, a most, is most attractive to a woman because he has a great personality or because he's very talented or handsome, friendly, funny, witty, strong, entertaining, rich, or successful, wise, or interesting. But regardless of any of these qualities, what makes a man most attractive to a girl or a woman is his ability to make her feel like a woman. When a man makes a woman feel feminine, her femininity is awakened, is switched on. And how does he do that? What allows a man to bring out the best in a woman can be summarized in one expression, acting like a man. A woman is most attracted to a man when he's confident, number one, Number two, he's purposeful and he's responsible. I'm going to hit hard on these three areas. How to demonstrate confidence, purposefulness, and responsibility. And if you can convey that in your video conferencing or your telephone conversations, you will be most successful as you prepare now to date in this era. The first attribute, confidence. The first attribute 
That man that makes a man most attractive is confidence. A woman can sense when a man is confident. She'll automatically begin to relax and feel assured that she will get what she needs when she's talking with him. When a man does not feel confident, a woman begins to worry. She starts to wonder. She starts not to relax. And as a result, her feminine side, which wants to relax and receive panics, and as a result, she starts to consider, maybe he's not for me. Confidence in a man makes a woman breathe deeper, relax and open up to receive the support he has to offer. I often work with a lot of guys in this area, building them up, showing them their abilities and their talents, and they have to give themselves more credit. Pat yourself on the back. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, every day say something good about yourself that you've done, that you've said or accomplished. Confidence does not mean that you have to be perfect, nor does it mean you have to have all the answers. Confidence is a can-do attitude. You need to demonstrate that can-do attitude when you speak to the girl. He knows that no matter what happens, there's always a solution. Even if he doesn't have the answer, he's confident that he can and will find an answer. With confidence, a man gains the objectivity to stand back and look for what can be done. At distressing times, he remains cool, calm, and collected. When a man gets angry and says mean things, he's not coming from a place of confidence. Instead, he's feeling threatened and threatens back. A confident man contains his feelings until he has figured out what to do. That's, immo- that's considered good midos. He may not know the outcome, but he senses no matter what happens, he can always find the next step to improve a situation. He feels that no matter how bad things get, he can eventually figure out what can be done, or find someone who knows what can be done, and then do it. These are the con- things you want to convey in your conversations. Stories that relate to that, that can express this. A confident attitude reassures the woman that everything will be alright. This is so important. When a man is confident, he's able to come up with a plan. And women love a plan. I can't tell you how often girls and women sit down with me and say to me if, about a certain guy that they're considering going out with, does he have a plan? It's so important to a woman that the man has a plan, especially a Panasa plan. And when we create, when I create a top 10 list for many women, I often, almost always write, has to have a Panasa plan. How is he going to take care of the wife and children? Does he have a plan for learning? Women love plans. A woman does not like it when a man is too dependent on her for direction. Although women give men a lot of direction and suggestions, they wish they didn't have to. A woman is happy to do some of the planning, but she wants the man to lead confidently. And you need to express that in your conversations while you're on the video or telephone. A woman enjoys a date when a man has a plan. Confidence is natural to men, but they can really lose it when they don't understand something. A man loses confidence on when, when he's on a conversation or in a date because he doesn't understand women. Women need to be listened to. That's so important. With an understanding of women, you can learn to listen without trying to solve the problem. Too often times, guys want to give solutions to the girls' problems. That's not what they want. They want it in listening ear, makshif. As the, woman, as the man listens without trying to help, she gets his chance to feel that he cares about her feelings and is trying to be understanding. When he's sincerely interested, understanding, and sympathetic, then no matter what the disappointment is, the girl feels better, and she becomes more attracted to the man. So it's important that when you converse, that you give complete eye contact. Don't interrupt. Listen well. Listen with an intent, as if you, in a sympathy, that you care. By being a sympathetic listener, a man can transform even a disappointing date into an intimate and rewarding experience for the woman. By understanding the way women think and feel, a man has a huge advantage over most men out there who are dating. Most men will ruin the date by trying to talk a woman out of being upset or disappointed. They don't realize the power of listening to a, a, 
to win over a, a, a woman. They don't realize the importance of little things, how important little things are. And it's the little things that matter. The second attribute to be successful in your dating or video dating or video chatting or telephone chatting, you need to demonstrate as a man that you have a sense of purposefulness. A man with a purpose is most attractive to a woman. When he has a plan, a dream, a direction, a vision, an interest, or a concern that's very attractive to a girl. It doesn't matter how great or grand the plan is. He's attractive to the degree that he feels passionate about achieving his purpose. So you need to describe what your goals are in life, what your dreams are, whether they're in learning, whether they're in working, and be passionate about it. How often do I have to you know, help people who are so flatlined and there's no ambition to them? There's no drama, there's no passion, and it's conveyed, comes over that way. The other side wants to see passion. The girls want to see passion. They want to see that you're interested, you're electrified in your plans. A person is attractive to the degree that they feel passionate about achieving their purpose, especially the man. He then becomes even more attractive when he focuses on his purposefulness to her. When he becomes focused on making her happy, then she's extremely happy and she's attracted to him. That does not mean that he gives up his other goals and wants only to make her happy. That's a turn-off. A woman knows that she cannot fulfill all his needs. She doesn't want him to stop his life for her. They would put too much pressure on her and the relationship. A woman does not want a man to give up his goals in order to make her happy. A man needs to have a sense of purpose separate from his relationship. He needs to have a direction first and then it's, and he's ready to create a relationship to support him in making his dreams come true. He feels a need for a woman to share the rewards and benefits of achieving that goal. The opportunity to share his success with a woman gives meaning to his life. And that's what you need to be conveying when you're speaking to the girl. As long as a man has a goal and has not given up, he has a future. Women love a man with a future. So you need to talk the future, what your goals are for the future. What you express about your future is how you successful you'll be in succeeding with that date. When a man is passionate about his work or his interests, his goals and his future, he's very attractive to the girl. When he's self-directed and self-motivated, a woman feels very relaxed and comfortable with him. Rather than feeling she needs to take care of him, she feels he has the energy and motivation to take care of her, and that makes her feel wonderful. Next. The third attribute that a girl looks for in a guy, responsibility. Achrayas. When a man does what he has to do, he'll automatically express a sense of responsibility. He radiates a sense of confidence that he'll do what he has to get done. It doesn't even matter if a woman has met him before, has experienced him being responsible. She'll assume him to be confident and purposeful. She'll be drawn to him like a bee to honey. So if you could talk about acts of responsibility that you did, if you stepped up to the plate to help your father when he wasn't feeling well, or you helped your friends, or you took the lead on an initiative with your, with your classmates. So you can talk about stories in which you were responsible. This will make her feel good about your ability to demonstrate confidence and that you're a person that you could be relied on. When a woman is attracted to a successful or influential man, what she's really attracted to is the responsible side of him that made him successful. The long hours required and the extra push to make something happen which caused him to emanate a sense of responsibility. Even if he's not responsible in all areas of his life, his ability to be passionately purposeful and responsible to what is most important to him will always show and will attract him to the girl. When a man is responsible, it says he cares. And that is what women are most hungry for. When a woman takes a man, dates a man, she needs to feel that he's not just wanting to take from her, but he wants to give and find a meaningful relationship. And the more the boy cares and the guy cares, the more she can trust him. One way a man can express this 
caring is by taking care of the little things and showing her that he's involved in the little things. Each time he does, he reassures her that he's someone that can be relied on. Let's talk a little bit about the girls, what they need to demonstrate. First of all, there's a myth out there that I need to clear up. Strong, independent, assertive, and successful women often have difficulty finding the right man and then sustaining a relationship because the very characteristics that make the girls successful at work can make them unsuccessful in dating. When a woman can actively pursue a goal in the workplace, she will succeed. But when she actively pursues that in dating, it could be a, lead to horrible, disastrous consequences. Although there's nothing wrong with a woman expressing her masculine type of side, it will backfire if she doesn't act feminine. At the end of the day, the man wants her to act feminine. That's very important. Whether, rather, let me move. Sometimes when, when women hear these new approaches, they can make those changes. So what is the most important quality that we want to see in a woman? Self-assurance. The first attribute that makes a woman most attractive is self-assurance. Most women have noticed some special women out there who seem to have men wrapped around their fingers. They wonder, how these special men, how these special women do it? That man will do anything she wants. How did these women pull it off? These special women always exude an air of grace and trust. They're always self-assured. They respect themselves and assume others will respect them. A self-assured woman trusts that others care and that they want to support her. She does not feel alone. She feels supported by her friends and family and by men. In her mind, almost all men are likable until proven otherwise. When she's not respected, she doesn't take it personally, but she just moves on. She realizes that she still deserves what she needs and gracefully tries another approach to get it. If that fails, she looks elsewhere for support. She doesn't expect perfection and is open to finding new ways of getting more of what she wants. Some women are naturally self-assured. They are born with this attitude, just as some singers are born with an incredible voice. For most, this attitude needs to be developed and cultivated. I do this with women all the time. I recently had a client in Israel that I've worked five, six times. We had about six video chats and where, where I pushed hard to work on her self-esteem, her self-assurance and self-confidence. It can be trained into, and I do this all the time. So if you need that help, feel free to reach out to me. I'd be happy to help you. It is already inside the woman. It just needs the opportunity to come out and be exercised and be trained out. Self-assurance is an attitude that assumes you'll always get what you need, and at this moment, you're in the process of getting it. It is a different attitude from confidence. Confidence assumes that you can do what you set out to do. Self-assurance assumes that others are available and want to help, and you don't have to do it all by yourself. You assume you'll get the assistance. It's a wonderful feeling of emuna. Hashem will help me. He'll take care of it. As a woman grows in self-assurance, she will not be attracted to men who cannot respond to her in the ways she deserves. And that's good. She'll be magnetically attracted to people that are better for her. It's not that men suddenly become perfect for her, or that she finds a perfect man. It's more that she's able to bring out the best in a man. When a man is interested in a woman, it's because he sees that she has that quality. And that he likes that. He respects that. A woman mistakenly assumes that when she's pleasing to a man, eager to satisfy his needs first, he will then be more motivated to please her. This woman may have an air of confidence because she knows she can please him, but it's not self-assurance. Trying to please a man will never earn his lasting affections. The opposite is true. When a man succeeds in pleasing a woman, then and only then is he motivated to please her. This helps us explain what, what makes a man on a, uh, on a conversation or on a date most charming and interested in a woman. Because he sees that self-assurance in a woman and he really likes it. A woman's attitude has the power either to turn a man on or turn him off. So it's important to cultivate that sense of self-assurance. For example, a man will most respect and want to hear what a woman has to say when she speaks in a manner that assumes that he's interested. 
So you, she assumes, it's like Dal Nekaf's chus. She assumes, gives always the man the benefit of the doubt. The very act of assuming a man will be interested, makes him more interested. If her attitude says she feels assured that he'll be interested, then they want to hear what she wants. She assumes automatically that he's interested. It is this attitude of being self-assured that draws the man's interest. A woman needs to remember that she is the jewel, and he's providing a setting for her to shine. Let her shine. As long as he gets credit for making her shine, he is happy to be the provider of support in the relationship. This attitude that, he is, that she's already worthy of attention makes her more desirable and intriguing to him. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to share the words of wisdom of Chazal and other great people out there. It's an honor and pleasure to speak to you and to be able to give us confidence and hope in this very, very austere time, in this time in which we really have to work on our imuna and bitachan. Hashem loves us. He'll always be there for us. If anyone out there, anyone in the world would like my help in any way, feel free to reach out to me at 305-206-1916. WhatsApp, texting, call me, or email me, or drjackcohen18 at gmail.com, or you can just go to my dating site, drjackdating.com, for any help. Everyone out there today, especially in these times, could use good guidance, and I'm happy to help you. Kol Tuvah You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.